We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 14 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, March 10th, 2021, a day on which Ron Rivera will be speaking, the head man of the Washington football team, the head coach in the coach-centric approach, the godfather of the Washington football team, an 11 a.m. Zoom press conference for Ron, Don Ron, uh, on this Wednesday. We'll be getting into that on Thursday's podcast of that you can be sure. But that's Thursday. What about this Wednesday? Good to be with you. Uh, we have plenty to discuss today. The deadline by which NFL teams needed to tag players has passed. No, the deadline was not postponed, as we thought could happen. And so we now have a clear picture of who is available in free agency. Who among those who was not tagged on Tuesday 
should Washington be interested in? As remember, free agency gets going next week. Legal tampering period begins on Monday. Official new league year gets going on Wednesday. One week from today, my friends, is New Year's Day in the National Football League. We'll be getting into who Washington should be interested among those who was not tagged on Tuesday coming up in just a bit. Our team, right? The bell of the ball, 50 plus million dollars in salary cap space. All kinds of free agents are going to be winking at our team. Who should our team be going after? Who should our team pursue? Who is worthy of Washington's money? Who is truly worthy of Dan Snyder's money? And maybe even access to the Twitter bots. Who knows? First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. By the way, are we allowed to include the Twitter bots in potential compensation for a free agent? Like, can that be an added bonus that we somehow work into the structure of the contract? Is that a salary cap violation if we include the Twitter bots in trying to pay one of these free agents? Somebody check on that. Well, what about Washington's own free agents? You know, we spent so much time talking about Brandon Sheriff. There was Ronald Darby news on Tuesday. I want to talk about that. And we had another item of evidence that Ron Rivera, again, Don Ron, is going godfather on the Washington football team. The baptism of fire has continued off our conversation on Tuesday's podcast. We'll be getting into that a little bit later on. The Capitals, what a game for them on Tuesday night. I got Nationals for you today. Steven Strasburg made his Grapefruit League debut last night. Looked good. It appears as if the Orioles will be allowed to have 50% capacity at Camden Yards. What might this mean for Nationals Park being allowed to have fans? Will Mayor Bowser take a cue from Governor Hogan off what he declared on Tuesday. Time will tell. And today is Georgetown's game in the Big East tournament, perhaps the first of multiple games. We shall see. But is today's game the final game for Georgetown this season? And not just that, is today's game the final game for Patrick Ewing as Hoyas head coach? I'm going to talk Hoyas with Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post. Patrick will actually be with me on both today's podcast and tomorrow's podcast. We'll talk Maryland, Virginia, and Virginia Tech with Patrick on Thursday's pod. But today is the Hoyas Day, so we'll do Hoyas conversation with Patrick today. Another thank you is in order to you for your support of this podcast. I just checked the Apple podcast ratings. This podcast still top 20 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Number 17. Number 17. Uh, one spot ahead of Peter King's podcast. That's a beautiful thing. Serves him right for being such an anti-name guy for all that time. And we're actually two spots ahead of Steve Zabin's podcast. Two spots ahead of the Zabecast. So we got that going for us. Uh, actually, I was on the Zabecast last week. It was a lot of fun. Very nice of him uh, to have me on there on the uh, Zabecast that he does with Carol Maloney. So it was good to see Carol. Good to see Zabe. So that was uh, that was fun. I appreciate that. Anyway, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Joe Rosnowski. And you see, Joe is exactly the kind of soldier, exactly the kind of grassroots warrior that we need for this podcast. Joe emailed me this question. He goes, Al, quick question. Does it benefit the pod more if I download it on Apple Podcasts versus just listening to it on Wi-Fi? Thanks for being my go-to daily pod now. Well, you're welcome, Joe. And thank you, Joe. And how about that question? Joe's saying, you know, I'm not just going to be a taker. I want to be a giver. I want to try to support 
this podcast. I want to try to do all that I can do to grow the Al Galdi podcast. Joe, I appreciate that. The answer would be that it is better to download the podcast. Uh, the sort of way podcasts are viewed and sold has to do primarily, though not necessarily entirely, but primarily with downloads. So yes, uh, download. Click the little button uh, on the internet there with the arrow pointing down in the square, or is it a rectangle? I'm not sure, but whatever the case may be, that's what you tap on to uh, get it to download off the webpage. Of course, if you're using you know, like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or whatever else, just subscribe, and, and that makes things uh, easiest. It'll just download automatically each day. But yes, uh, if you can download, that helps quite a bit. So download, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. You guys have been outstanding when it comes to that. So once again, I thank you for your help, for your support. All right. This is a great time of year in sports. It is a huge time of year in the National Football League. And what is Washington about to do in free agency? We perhaps have a better understanding of the events of the last 24 hours. All right, so the NFL's tag deadline has come and gone 4 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, and there was a lot of news to be chewing on and processing if you're a Washington football team fan over these last 24 hours. In terms of who got tagged and who did not get tagged, probably the primary people you want to be aware of from a Washington football team standpoint in terms of who got franchise tagged on Tuesday. Tampa Bay Buccaneers receiver Chris Godwin tagged. Chicago Bears receiver Allen Robinson tagged. New Orleans Saints free safety Marcus Williams tagged. Uh, That was someone we talked about in depth with NFL analyst Mark Bullock on Tuesday's podcast. But there were a number of prominent free agents to be who were not tagged. And we want to spend some time talking about those guys here right now in terms of who makes sense, who might be a proper fit for the Washington football team in free agency when that gets going next week. So I'd like to actually start with the tight end position, okay? Now, we all know Logan Thomas had a very good 2020. One of the great bright spots for Washington in 2020 was the production that the team got from Logan Thomas. He gets signed last offseason to a mere two-year, $6.145 million contract. He ends up in the 2020 regular season having 72 receptions for 670 yards and six touchdowns on 110 targets over 16 games. He became just the third tight end in Washington history to have a season with at least 70 catches, at least 650 receiving yards, and at least five receiving touchdowns. Joined Jordan Reed in 2015 and Chris Cooley in 2005. That's how good Logan Thomas's 2020 was. He performed at the level of peak Cooley and peak Reed, right? Because 2005 Cooley, that was Cooley at his best. 2015 Jordan Reed, that was more or less Reed at his best. I mean, his two best seasons to me were 2015 and 2016. And Thomas produced at that level last season. This is a guy, right? A converted quarterback, a guy who came to Washington having in his career as a tight end totaled a mere 35 catches. That same guy last year, 72 catches, 670 yards, and six touchdowns. But there was a thing for Washington with Logan at tight end in 2020. And that was, he was leaned upon a ton. Logan Thomas played on 92.7% of Washington's offensive snaps last year. That's great. Good for him. But you really became super reliant on him in terms of tight end production. The other tight ends on Washington's roster, think Jeremy Sprinkle, think Marcus Ball, 
These guys were like never targeted. Like Logan Thomas was basically the only option in terms of pass catching at the tight end position. That's a dangerous way to live. In today's NFL, you want production from tight ends. This has been proven statistically. Passes to tight ends are actually more efficient than passes to receivers. And, you know, especially just from a standpoint of just basic depth, like you don't want to just be so reliant on one person. If that person gets hurt or that person struggles for whatever reason, then what do you do with tight ends? So you need to add to your tight end depth this offseason. I think everybody's on board with that. Now, the name that's come up a lot is Hunter Henry of the Los Angeles Chargers. And sure enough, the Chargers did not franchise tag Henry by Tuesday's deadline. Remember, the Chargers last offseason did franchise tag Hunter Henry did not do so this offseason. So Hunter Henry is going to be an unrestricted free agent. And Hunter Henry is a really interesting guy. Second round pick in the 2016 draft out of Arkansas. He's going into just his age 27 season. But if you know Hunter Henry, you know that while he is good, he also has a significant injury history. Hunter Henry has played in just 55 of a possible 80 regular season games over five seasons in the NFL. He's missed 35 of 80 possible games over five years in terms of the regular season. Did not play at all in 2018 due to a torn right ACL that was suffered at an OTA practice in May of 18. Henry in 2019 missed four games due to a fractured left knee that was suffered in week one. Uh, Now, Henry did hold up this past season. That is true. 2020 uh, missed two games. They were the Chargers' final two games, but he missed those two games due to being on the team's reserve slash COVID-19 list. So the body held up in 2020. That would be the good news with Hunter Henry. And he is good. Like, nobody's saying that he's not good. Career best 60 catches in 2020, went for 613 yards and four touchdowns. I like Hunter Henry, but personally, I'm not interested in paying him big money. And I feel like it's going to probably cost at least decent money to sign the guy. I mean, most people frame him as the number one free agent tight end out there. I'm sorry, I'm not in love with paying real money to someone who's missed so much time. A big thing with me, and if you've listened to me for a while, you know this. If you're just joining the revolution, you will come to know this. A big thing with me when it comes to paying athletes is you don't want to pay people with significant injury history. You don't want to be in the business of relying on people who can't be relied on. This is one of the things that really got the Washington football team in trouble over these last few years. Paying big money to guys who didn't provide big production, either due to just not being that good or just like never being healthy or not being healthy enough. It's one of my biggest hangups with paying Brandon Sheriff. He misses a lot of time, 16 games over the last three years. Hunter Henry is in that territory of he's missed a lot of time. Torn right ACL, fractured left knee, like these are not insignificant things. It's not necessarily his fault. It doesn't mean he's soft, but I would be very leery of paying Hunter Henry big money. The tight end who I would love to see Washington sign, and this guy also was not franchise tagged on Tuesday, is Janu Smith of the Tennessee Titans, okay? Hunter Henry gets all the attention. Janu, it is you who I want my team to end up signing. We'll see if that ends up happening here, but there is to me so much to like about Janu Smith. So first of all, younger than Hunter Henry by a year, not that that's a huge deal, but Janu Smith is going into just his age 26 season, was taken by the Titans in the third round of the 2017 draft at a Florida International. Janu Smith over his four seasons, 2017 through 2020, durable. He's played in 60 of a possible 64 regular season games for the Titans. Janu Smith 
over his four seasons with Tennessee. Year-by-year improvement. His receptions, receiving yards, receiving touchdowns, and targets all have either gone up or stayed the same each season as compared to the previous season. So each year, you're either getting better in each category or just staying the same in each category. But it's like bit by bit, little by little. You know, for those of you who are Guns N' Roses fans, you remember the song Mr. Brownstone, I just kept trying to get a little better, say a little better than before. And that's Janu Smith. Every year, the guy is demonstrating improvement. Janu Smith can be a playmaker. If you go back to that stunning Titans win at the Baltimore Ravens in the divisional round of the 2020 postseason, one of the plays of that game, a Janu Smith first quarter, third and goal, 12-yard touchdown reception on a spectacular diving one-arm catch with his left arm in the back left corner of the end zone. If you didn't see this play or you don't remember this play, Google it up, all right? YouTube it up. It was sensational. Janu Smith has got real playmaking ability, and Janu Smith is a willing blocker in the run game, right? This has been something that has plagued Washington for years. Bad tight end blocking in the run game, you know, or at times unwilling tight end blocking in the run game. Janu Smith is known for his strength. Janu Smith is a willing blocker, right? Remember, Janu Smith is a guy who's played a bunch for the Titans in recent years. What have the Titans been known for as much as anything offensively? Derrick Henry destroying opposing defenses. Well, a part of that is the blocking. Tennessee has schemed it up beautifully for Derrick Henry in recent years, and Janu Smith has been a part of that execution. Now, he's going to cost real money. It's not like you're going to sign him for what you signed Logan Thomas for. But I don't think that Jonu Smith is going to get Hunter Henry money. And to me, as I just detailed, I think there's a lot to like about Jonu Smith. And I like Jonu Smith more than I like Hunter Henry. So I would love to see Washington get itself some Jonu Smith. All right, now we move to receiver. And the need for upgrade at receiver, of course, is obvious. You got Terry McLaurin after that. There's still a lot of uncertainty. Now, I do think out of Steven Sims, Cam Sims, Antonio Gandy-Golden, maybe some others, you're going to have someone be at least semi-reliable in 2021. Like, I don't think it's like you got McLaurin and then nothing. It was a disappointing 2020 for Steven Sims. That is true. But I do think there's still a possibility that the guy who we saw in December of 2019 is the guy we can see again. But you just can't count on that. I mean, I, I totally understand that. Cam Sims, I mean, he definitely flashed last season and he definitely had some big games last season, but he also still has an issue with drops. So Cam Sims, to me, you can't just look at him and say, well, he's your number two. It's like, no, He's a part of your mix, and maybe he's a nice number three, but you, you need to do better in terms of your support for Terry McLaurin, all right? And this offseason, very clearly, I think, Washington is going to address receiver. All right, so one of the big items that came out relatively early on Tuesday was that the Detroit Lions were not franchise tagging Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay has come up a bunch with Washington, and I think Washington should be in on Kenny Galladay, although there's something to be mindful of with him. So Kenny Galladay Going into his age 28 season, there is a lot to like about Kenny Galladay. First of all, he is a true deep threat, a, a true outside receiver, a true X receiver. Going back to that chat I had on Tuesday's podcast with Mark Bullock, you know, Bullock got into the Curtis Samuel conversation, the Carolina Panthers receiver, and said, look, I get all the reasons people think that Washington may sign Samuel, but he actually may not be the great fit that people make it out to be. What Washington really needs is a true outside guy, a true X receiver, that's not really what Samuel is, right? Samuel is more of a diminutive receiver, you know, a slot receiver. Now, to me, I, I think sometimes people get a little too caught up in who's the X, who's the Y, who's the Z. I still would be in on Curtis Samuel, 
But I understand what Mark's uh, saying when he says that. And Kenny Galladay does fit the description to a T of what Washington could use. Outside guy, X receiver, over his first four NFL seasons, 2017 to 2020, an average of 16.8 yards per catch, including 18.3 yards per catch in what was a monster 2019 season for Galladay. Now, speaking of that season, Galladay in 2019, 65 catches for 1,190 yards and an NFL leading 11 touchdowns. And Galladay did all this, remember, despite Matthew Stafford playing in just eight games in 2019 due to the back injury. The two Lions quarterbacks for the team's other eight games in 2019 were Jeff Driscoll and David Blau. Okay, so Kenny Galladay puts up big numbers in 2019, despite for eight games having as his quarterback either Jeff Driscoll or David Blau. Uh, that's saying something about Kenny, Kenny Galladay and what he can do. Actually had back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons in 2018 and 2019. Maybe the thing you like as much as anything with Galladay, a master of the contested catch. Kenny Galladay for Pro Football Focus, number three among receivers in contested catches over the last two regular seasons at 36. Kenny Galladay per PFF, number one among receivers in contested catches on throws of at least 10 yards over the last three regular seasons. Kenny Galladay has what you call great go-up-and-get-it skills. He goes up and he gets it. He's a bigger receiver, 6'4", 214 pounds. He's got great leaping ability. He's got great ball tracking skills. Kenny Galladay, here's the way you frame it. Kenny Galladay is what Josh Doxson was supposed to be, right? We got told over and over again, especially by our old pal Jay Gruden, I'll just throw Josh more 50-50 balls. You know, just got to throw him more 50-50 balls. He like never came down with him, okay? He like never made the catch. I can think of one true 50-50 ball that Josh Doxson made a big play on, and that was in that ripping of the Oakland Raiders on Sunday Night Football back in 2017. Actually made the catch, the 50-50 ball reception over David Amerson, if you remember that game, and of course, who was the Raiders head coach for that game, but Jack Del Rio. But anyway, we used to always hear about Josh Doxson being good at 50-50 balls. We never actually saw Josh Doxson be good at 50-50 balls. Kenny Galladay is good at 50-50 balls. And i tell you what else about Galladay third round pick in 2017 out of Northern Illinois. So, you know, this is not someone who's like been handed anything at the NFL level. My concern with Galladay would be, yes, health. Uh, Kenny Galladay in 2020 played in just five games, okay? He missed the Lions' first two games of the season due to a hamstring injury, then missed the Lions' final nine games of the season due to a hip flexor strain. So you got to be confident in the medicals. You got to feel good about where he's at with his body because obviously those are two ailments that can really hamper a receiver, right? A hamstring, a hip flexor situation. You know, he's not 24. He is going, like I said, into his age 28 season, but he is good and he fits the description in so many ways of what Washington would be looking for. If the money's right, I would have no problem with Washington signing Kenny Galladay. Another receiver out there, Juju Smith-Schuster. Not that it was necessarily anticipated, that the Pittsburgh Steelers would franchise tag him. But, you know, it is worth noting he is going to be out there. Uh, Steelers didn't franchise tag anybody. Could have tagged Juju if they really wanted to. Uh, Could have tagged the guy who the Steelers tagged last offseason, the edge rusher Bud Dupree. Didn't do so. So Juju, as anticipated, will be an unrestricted free agent. There are things to like about Juju. He's young, going into just his age 25 season. Uh, Juju, very good over his first two years, 2017 
and 2018. He's a second-round pick in the 2017 draft out of USC. And Juju in 2018 had one of the great seasons you'll ever see a number two receiver have. 111 catches for 1,426 yards and seven touchdowns on 166 targets. The guy got targeted almost 17 times per game in the 2018 regular season, and he produced. Uh, Juju has a nose for the end zone. Four seasons, 26 touchdown catches. For pro football focus, Juju, over the last two years, most touchdown receptions for receivers when lined up in the slot at 11. So that could help a lot, right? I mean, it's not like Washington doesn't have slot options on the team already. It does. But a guy like Juju could take your slot game to the next level, and especially inside the red zone. The guy produces in terms of scoring touchdowns. He's one of the better blocking receivers in the NFL, Juju Smith-Schuster is. And he's been pretty durable. You know, health's a big thing. Juju, for the most part, has held up. He's a tough player. Uh, Four years, 58 of a possible 64 regular season games he's played in. So like I said, there's a lot to like about Juju. But there's also this. And this is something that, to me, it's hard to get away from. Juju's numbers for the Steelers have plummeted over the last two years. And of course, what does that coincide with? No Antonio Brown. Without AB as Pittsburgh's number one, Juju Smith-Schuster, in a lot of ways, has gotten exposed. He's not a number one. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not valuable. You know, some guys just aren't true ones. They're much better off as twos. And coming to Washington, Juju would be a two, right? Terry McLaurin would be your one. Juju would be your two. So I think that maybe eradicates this concern. However, you have to be mindful of this issue, like the extent to which Juju's numbers have nosedived over the last two years. Juju off the big 2018 in 2019, over 12 regular season games, just 42 catches. Juju this past season, 2020, plays in all 16 regular season games, has 96 catches, so like that's a big year, but he averages just 8.6 yards per catch. Now, a lot of that, yes, had to do with the Steelers' offense and Big Ben so often throwing quick and throwing short to stay healthy and the Steelers like not having any faith at all in their run game, but still, 8.6 yards per catch on 96 catches. Also had three fumbles Juju did in 2020. So he's not a true number one. He's not a dominant number one. That's not the end of the world, but that has to be uh, known. I think there's also this with Juju. And, you know, this stuff is always kind of dicey and tricky. But I'm not sure that Juju is what you call a Ron Rivera culture guy, okay? Now, he may be, you know, he's very active, Juju is, on social media. I don't think that makes you a bad person. But I know that that sometimes can be a sign of someone not being fully committed or fully all in on the team concept, you know, that kind of a thing. There was the TikTok dance scenario with Juju this past year, if you remember him doing a TikTok dance on the Buffalo Bills logo in midfield at Bill Stadium. Uh, That preceded what was one of many late season Steelers losses, a 26-15 loss at Buffalo on Sunday Night Football on December 13th. And, you know, the, the whole Juju dancing on the mid field logo became a thing. All right. So some of this stuff can get way overblown. I'll grant you that. But you would have to make sure that Juju fits the culture you are trying to establish. There's no doubt about that. But there are things to like about Juju. But if you're asking me Juju or Galladay, uh, I would go Galladay. Another name that's come up, and I'm personally not very interested in him for Washington, that is Corey Davis. Uh, The Tennessee Titans did not franchise tag Corey Davis by Tuesday's deadline. So Davis going into his age 26 season, listed by the Titans as being 6'3", was taken by the Titans with the number five overall pick in the 2017 draft 
out of Western Michigan. And Corey Davis had been a bust, okay? The Titans did not even pick up his fifth-year option in the rookie contract. How often does that happen? A top-five pick doesn't even get the fifth-year option exercise. Now, he did have a really good 2020, at least by the standards that he had established. So Titans don't pick up the fifth-year option last offseason. Davis goes into year number four and actually has a good year. Uh, 65 catches, 984 yards, so 15.1 yards per reception, and five touchdowns on 92 targets. And he did all this over 14 regular season games. Corey Davis in 2020 for Pro Football Focus, number five in the NFL in yards per route run at 2.58. So he had a good 2020, but that's the only good season truly that he's had over four NFL seasons. He overall, even if you factor in the 2020 season, has been a bust, okay? And I'm not really that enthused about having someone like that come to the team. Now, he's not going to cost you what a Galladay or a Juju presumably will cost you. That is true. But I would be really cautious with someone like this. Why hasn't it worked out? What exactly has gone wrong here? You know, the Titans are a very smart, very shrewd organization. Why didn't they even pick up the fifth-year option for this guy? You know, uh, I think that's telling. I think that's really telling. So you'd have to look into what exactly has gone wrong for Corey Davis, but I'm underwhelmed, even with the good 2020 that the guy ended up having. All right, linebacker, another position area of need for Washington, right? You have Cole Holcomb. Uh, you do have John Bostic coming back. That is true. But to me, John Bostic on a good defense, you know, with a good linebacking core, he's a backup. He's not a starter. And Washington has relied on Bostic a ton over the last few years. He does fit the culture. You know, but I, I think if you can get to a point with this linebacking quarter where John Bostic is a reserve, you're doing something well here, right? Like, that's good. Now you got some real depth at the position. Uh, remember, Kevin Pierre Lewis is a free agent to be. I'm not against resigning KPL, but again, as a backup, not as a starter. Washington has got to get better at linebacker. Washington has got to get deeper at linebacker. So there were two names that we were tracking yesterday regarding Washington and the linebacker spot. One was Levante David the Tampa Bay Buccaneers linebacker. He was not franchise tagged by the Bucs, but then it came out that he reportedly has agreed to resign with the Bucs, a two-year deal. So Levante David is not an option. And Levante David was going to be, I think, a really interesting option. He is older going into his age 31 season, but he has been very durable. He has been very productive. He has been a staple for the Buccaneers on defense. He has been someone who's been quite good in coverage. Like Levante David actually would have checked a lot of boxes for the Washington football team, but he's not an option. A name that's come up a lot, we talked about this guy with Mark Bullock on Tuesday's podcast, is Matt Milano. Uh, the Buffalo Bills did not franchise tag Milano. Milano's going in his age 27 season. A Cole Holcomb-like story from a standpoint of having been a fifth-round pick, uh, 2017 draft for Milano at a Boston college. And Matt Milano has been quite good in coverage. You go by his pro football focus stuff. First four seasons here, PFF has Milano as having allowed a passer rating of just 83.9. That's 20 points lower than the average passer rating allowed by linebackers in coverage. However, with Milano, there is the concern of the health. Milano in 2020 played in just 10 regular season games, dealt with a hamstring injury, dealt with a pectoral injury. His overall grade for the season for PFF was just 55.8. I don't think he's going to cost a ton. So if you look at him as a nice bounce back candidate, which by the way, I think he is, and you trust the body to hold up, 
then I would sign him. Because uh, like I said, I think he fits a lot of what you're looking for. You need better linebacker play in pass coverage, especially. Matt Milano would help to bring that. He's a hardworking guy. He's a guy who you can trust is going to fit what you want to do from a culture standpoint, right? A Buffalo Bills guy, Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott, guys who, of course, worked with Ron Rivera with the Carolina Panthers. My only holdup with Milano, like I said, would be the health. Got to make sure that you trust the body to stay strong and got to make sure that these things that really ailed Milano last year was not a good season for him. Uh, And like I said, he missed the, the six games. Hamstring, pectoral injury. Got to make sure he's okay from that standpoint. But Matt Milano would make a lot of sense. I still think Washington should be in on Kyle Van Noy, you know, and, and if you could get it to be to where it's Milano and Van Noy and Cole Holcomb as your top three linebackers, uh, I think now you're upgrading what was pretty clearly the weakest part of what was, remember, a much improved defense for Washington in 2020. Now to a Washington football team free agent to be. So the number one free agent to be for the Washington football team in terms of prominence, in terms of achievement, in terms of money, had been Brandon Sheriff. But Brandon Sheriff now has been franchise tagged for a second consecutive offseason. So Brandon Sheriff is no longer a free agent to be for Washington. After Sheriff, you could argue the most significant free agent to be for the Washington football team is corner Ronald Darby. Now, of course, you also have Ryan Kerrigan. But everyone expects Ryan Kerrigan to depart and go elsewhere. So no doubt, Ryan Kerrigan has meant more to the Washington football team over time than Ronald Darby has. But with Kerrigan, it's almost like not even a conversation because, again, he's expected to be bye-bye. Actually, a decent number of these unrestricted free agents to be for Washington are expected to go bye-bye. Ryan Kerrigan, gone. Ryan Anderson, gone. Fabian Moreau, gone. You know, I think Jeremy Sprinkle, gone. Um, I think Ruben Foster, I know there's some talk, maybe they resign him. Okay, I guess it's possible, but you're certainly not counting on him for next year. He may well could be gone. So I think Darby's a big one, right? After Sheriff, it's probably the most significant one. It's certainly the most significant one in terms of contributions during the 2020 season. We had this on Tuesday afternoon from Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC. He tweeted the following, quote, several teams are legit eyeing Washington football cornerback Ronald Darby per sources, but WFT still hopes to keep him. The cornerback market is a weird one. No elite options, but several solid players. Could be a scenario where some choose one-year deals in this lower cap environment, end quote. I've been wondering about the market for Darby this offseason because Ben's right there aren't any real, true, elite cornerback options. You know, last offseason, you had James Bradbury. You had Byron Jones. You don't really have anyone along those lines this offseason. But Darby is coming off a really good 2020. Uh, Ronald Darby was one of the great free agent finds for Washington last offseason, right? Like, we've spent so much time talking about Logan Thomas and the great free agent signing that proved to be. J.D. McKissick, same thing. Wes Schweitzer, same thing. Ronald Darby very much is a part of that mix as well. Washington signed Darby last offseason to a one-year $3 million contract, and Darby in 2020 was quite good. In fact, you could argue Darby was Washington's best corner in 2020, better even than Kendall Fuller. If you go by the pro football focus overall grade for each guy, Darby was better. He had a grade of 76. Fuller's grade 
with 67.2. But Ronald Darby ends up starting all 16 games for Washington, ends up leading Washington in defensive snaps at 95.89%. So nobody played more for a Washington defense in 2020 that vaulted all the way up to number two in the NFL in pass defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric than Ronald Darby. I mean, think about that, right? A pass defense that went from 27th per DVOA in 2019 to second in 2020. Nobody played more for that defense than Ronald Darby. Like, what does that say about the season that he ended up having? Now, it's interesting. He had no picks last year, but we all know that you can't just judge a corner by his interceptions. Interceptions are nice. It's great if you provide them, but they're not the end-all be-all when judging cornerback play. Darby, after a bit of a bumpy start to the year, became very reliable in coverage. He led Washington with 16 pass defenses on the year. If you remember the win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field in Week 11, that 29 victory, Darby in that game had four pass defenses, also had a fumble recovery. Remember, it was Darby who ultimately was credited with the fumble recovery on that weird Chase Young play. Remember that play, second quarter, fourth and goal at the Washington three. Chase Young wallops Joe Burrow on a shotgun scramble for a forced fumble that is recovered by Cameron Curl in the end zone. Curl brings the ball out of the end zone, but loses the football. It's then recovered by Darby in the end zone, but not for a safety because the officials ended up ruling that Curl never had true possession of the football. One of the wackier plays of the Washington 2020 season, uh, but Darby ended up getting the fumble recovery on that play. But I think what is so notable too about Darby's 2020 is again, how much he played because Ronald Darby came to Washington having had a very significant injury history over the previous three years. Ronald Darby from 2017 through 2019 with the Philadelphia Eagles played in just 28 of a possible 48 regular season games. That's it. He missed 20 games over three years with the Eagles. Darby did. 2017, he played in just eight regular season games due to a dislocated right ankle. Darby in 2018 played in just nine regular season games due to a torn right ACL. And Darby in 2019 played in just 11 regular season games due to a hip flexor injury. I mean, there's one thing after another for Darby with the Eagles. Dislocated right ankle, torn right ACL, hip flexor injury. That was my big thing with Darby going into last season. I was one of these people saying, boy, is it interesting that old Ron Ron is counting on Ronald Darby as one of the team's top corners, given that this guy just cannot stay healthy. And by the way, also was coming off a very bad 2019. Ronald Darby was not good for the Eagles in 2019. Going back to the PFF stuff, if you go by Darby's coverage grade for Pro Football Focus in 2019, Darby ranked 127th out of 130 qualifying corners in 2019 with a coverage grade of 41, okay? Uh, Darby in 2019 per PFF was responsible for eight plays that each resulted in a gain of at least 30 yards. Like, it was a bad season. It was an injury plague season. And I was just like, man, he hasn't been that good recently. He's missed a ton of time over the last three years. And you're counting on this guy to be your number two corner? And yet it worked. You know, it worked. Like, Ron was proven so right on Ronald Darby in 2020. He was really, really good. So, heck yeah, I want Washington to re-sign him. I think the good news is that this should not be a contract where you have to pay the guy, you know, 10, 11, 12 million dollars a year or anything like that. However, it only takes one other team to really want him 
to drive up Darby's price. So I think that's going to be a fine line you have to walk here. You don't want to overpay for this guy when you really only have this one recent season of health and of real high-level production. But he was good last year, and you need a lot of corners in today's NFL. And if you think about Washington at the cornerback position, all right, you have Kendall Fuller coming back, and he had a good first season, you know, kind of cooled off as the year went on, but still Kendall Fuller was good last year. So you have Kendall Fuller, you have Jimmy Moreland, but you need at least two other corners you feel good about, right? I mean, today's NFL, you're in nickel all the time. You obviously want depth if a guy gets hurt or struggles. So Darby, as a part of that cornerback mix, heck yeah, I'd like him back next year. Um, I'm not going to overpay to keep him, but you've got the cap room here to make this work. And even if you have to pay a little more than you want, Ronald Darby to me was good enough in 2020, fit what you did defensively well. You obviously trusted him a bunch. Again, nobody played more on defense for Washington in 2020 than Ronald Darby did. I just hope the price doesn't get too high. I tend to think it won't. I mean, teams aren't stupid. They know that the guy has had a hard time staying healthy. But yeah, this is the perfect time for Darby to go into free agency. Coming off a great year, coming off a healthy year, and entering a free agent cornerback market that isn't great. We have a Ron Rivera baptism of fire update here on the Al Galdi podcast. So on Tuesday's pod, I outlined for you in detail how what Ron Rivera is doing for the Washington football team behind the scenes right now reeks of the baptism of fire in the Godfather movie, right? Those late movie scenes of Michael Corleone exacting his revenge, eliminating the enemies of the Corleone family and removing from the Corleone family two traitors, Connie Corleone's husband, Carlo, and Salvatore Tessio. And that to me has been so much of what's been going on behind the scenes with Ron Rivera over these last few months, right? Kyle Smith gone, Cole Spencer, Kyle Smith gone, Jeff, right? Kyle Smith gone. Uh, multiple other people in Washington's scouting department gone. Jeff Scott, Cole Spencer, Brian Zekis. You know, you think about Paul Kelly, the director of football operations for years. You know, one of the biggest Bruce Allen guys, a guy who was with Brucey with the Oakland Raiders and with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and had been with Bruce for here. Ron is removing people he either doesn't like, isn't a big fan of, or doesn't feel like he can trust. I think that's 100% what's happening here. And a lot of this happened last offseason, right? Larry Hess gone, Eric Schaefer gone, that kind of a thing. Well, did you happen to see what Nikki Javala, Washington football team insider for the Washington Post, tweeted last night? Okay. And this has actually now been confirmed if you go to this guy's LinkedIn page. Brian Porter has been hired by the Washington football team as director of football operations. Who is Brian Porter? Well, he had been the, guess, wait for it. Well, he had been the director of football operations for, wait for it, Carolina Panthers, uh, July 2017 to January 2021. Actually, had been with the Panthers since July 2001. So what has happened here? Ron has axed, Ron has whacked Paul Kelly and has brought in Brian Porter for the same position. Ron has whacked maybe the single biggest Bruce Allen guy in the Washington organization, and has brought in a Carolina Panthers guy. Another Pantherskin has made his way to the nation's capital and Brian Porter. I mean, this is undeniable, people, okay? This is, there's no ignoring this. There's no disputing this. Ron is bringing in his people. 
Ron is fortifying his army. Ron is building up his base of supporters. Ron is establishing his mafia, his soldiers inside the Washington football team organization. People he believes in, people he trusts, people he feels like aren't going to be leaking things left and right, people he knows or at least expects will be on his side if the stuff ever goes down and these divides that have arisen time and again with our team over the years, these inner divides, right? The inner office politics, things like Mike Shanahan versus Dan Snyder, Jay Gruden versus Bruce Allen, the the ugliness, the toxicity, the lack of organizational alignment. Ron is trying to build up an army to where he doesn't have to deal with that. And if somehow it does come up, he's got a bunch of guys on his side, people loyal to him, not loyal to Danny or loyal to somebody else in the upper echelons of the front office. And look, it's not to say that all these guys who Ron has gotten rid of were leakers or were liars or were bad people, okay? I'm not saying that. I don't know that. But I know this. It's impossible to ignore this trend. All these guys, okay, people brought here by Bruce Allen, some of them actually pre-dating Bruce Allen in terms of arrival uh, to the organization. Ron's whacking them. One after another. Again, baptism of fire. Michael Corleone removing the likes of Mo Green and Philip Tataglia and Emilio Barzini, like getting rid of these people who have been in the way. Ron is eliminating these people and he's bringing in more of his own. And this guy, Brian Porter, is the latest example of this. Now, most people will probably never even see Brian Porter in terms of fans of this team, but just be mindful of what's happening here. There is a major restructuring going on in terms of who's in and who's out with this team. And Ron is continuing to bring in his people. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Got this email from Eric Smith. He writes, Galdi, whenever there's a segment that mentions the Godfather, you got to play the you can act like a man soundbite. It's gold. You know what? You're right, Eric. I should play that. So Ron Rivera right now in the Washington football team front office when he is whacking all these different longtime Brucey guys, and maybe these guys get emotional or they get angry. What does Ron do? He smacks them right across the face, and he says, as the Godfather said many years ago, You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? That's right, Godfather. Thank you. Ron is the Godfather. Ron is the Don Corleone of the Washington football team. Ron has the absolute power. It's what we've wanted for years. No more Danny someone with full authority to run football operations. And time will tell if that continues to be the case. But every indication is that that is the case. And what you got to hope for is that the guy with the absolute power exercises that power properly and makes good decisions and does things that lead to winning because that's what matters ultimately more than anything else. You can have the right structure. You can have full autonomy for someone but that someone better make the right decisions. And we'll see on that. Uh, But Ron is off to a good start. And Ron very clearly is building up his mafia. Don Ron has got his capos lined up and in order, and he's removing those he no longer wants to be in business with. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Yes, thank you, Don. Well, what about what happened with our Capitals on Tuesday night? A win that in so many ways should have been a loss, but it does end up being a win. And I guess at the end of the day, that's what matters the most. The Caps now are 15-6-4, a 5-4 overtime win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. Caps are 2-0-0 without Tom Wilson 
during his seven-game suspension. So, so far, so good without old Wilsey uh, for this latest suspension. But come on. I mean, if you watch the game, you know the Caps are lucky to have won this thing. The Caps blew a 3-0 second-period lead, blew a 4-1 third-period lead, gave up three third-period goals, but got bailed out by a Jacob Vrana game-winning even-strength goal, 1.30 into overtime. This was a collapse that, thankfully, ended up being a win. And like I said, it shouldn't have been a win for so many different reasons. Not just the blowing of those two big leads. Again, 3 nothing in the second period, 4-1 in the third period. The Caps in that third period, per natural stat trick, had just seven five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils' 16. This is off the Caps having dominated five-on-five play over the first two periods, 45-on-five shot attempts to the Devils' 20. Also, the Caps in that third period, just five shots on goal to the Devils' 16. You got more than tripled up in terms of shots on goal in that third period on Tuesday night. How about this for the game? Not just the third period, but the game overall. The Caps for the game per natural stat trick, a mere two five-on-five high-danger shot attempts versus the Devils' 10. You got quintupled in the high-danger shot attempt department on Tuesday night, and yet you ended up winning. You won despite another bad performance by Vitek Vanacek. What's going on with our guy Vitek? So he's back in net as a cap starting goaltender, 19th time in 21 games, and he ultimately has a second consecutive bad game. He stops just 27 of 31 shots, including just 13 of 16 shots, in the third period. Uh, per natural stat trick, did stop nine of the 10 high danger shots that he faced, but he gave up two goals on medium danger shots and a goal on a low danger shot. And this was off what we saw from VTech in his previous game, that Friday night 5-1 loss at the Boston Bruins. Vanacek had maybe his worst game of the season in that game, stopped just 14 of 18 shots, was pulled in the second period in favor of Ilya Samsonov. And then remember, it was Samsonov who started and played well in that 3-1 win at the Philadelphia Flyers on Sunday night. Samsonov was very good in that game. Stopped 36 of 37 shots. So, you know, I don't know what's going on here with Ovitek, but Samsonov is back. Samsonov was coming off a really good outing, and Vitek, who was not coming off a good game, has a second straight subpar game uh, in this game on Tuesday night. Caps also had four more minor penalties on Tuesday night, including two in the third period, though the Caps had finished three for three on the penalty kill. But again, there was a lot not to like about this game, okay? Like, I mean, you can't just be throwing bouquets and uh, candy canes and lollipops here to the Caps for this performance. It wasn't a very good performance, especially in that third period. But the Caps did win, and that's what matters in the end. And the hero of the game very clearly ends up being Jacob Vrana. Jake the Snake with two even strength goals on Tuesday night. You know, he now has 10 goals this season, all of which have been even strength goals. Jacob Rana, as we speak on this Wednesday, tied for fifth in the NHL in even strength goals at 10. You know, there are some guys who pad their goal totals by just scoring a bunch on power plays. Jacob Rana is doing this the hard way. 10 goals on the season, each goal an even strength goal. His first goal, even strength goal, 742 into the second period for a 2-0 Caps lead. This goal came during four-on-four play. And how about the pass from John Carlson on this play? Caps are controlling the puck in their offensive zone. Carlson draws two devils in the left circle. And then while outside of the left circle near the boards, makes a beautiful spinning pass through the high slot to a wide open Vrana in the right circle for the shot and score. Just an awesome play by Carlson. And of course, you credit Vrana for converting. And then the game-winning goal. 
Even strength goal, 130 into overtime. Evgeny Kuznetsov during three-on-three play makes a terrific pass from behind the blue line in the Caps defensive zone to a streaking Vrana who had just come off the bench in the neutral zone. Vrana blows by. Devils defenseman Ty Smith scores on a breakaway shot in the low slot by going backhand, forehand to beat Devils goaltender Scott Wedgwood. Awesome stuff by Vrana. The speed, the skill on display. Vrana's having a very nice year. Comes up big with the two goals on Tuesday night. Kuznetsov was good. He finished with two primary assists. Nicholas Backstrom had two secondary assists. You know, Backstrom, as we speak on this Wednesday, ninth in the NHL with 29 points. And Alex Ovechkin, he did go pointless, but he had a game-high nine shot attempts, five of which were blocked. And Ovi was number four on the caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick. Ovi on the ice in five-on-five play on Tuesday night. Caps had 20 shot attempts for just 13 against. This continues kind of a recent trend with Ovechkin where he's not piling up the points, but he is active and he is playing well. Like you just look at some of Ovechkin's recent games. You go back to a week ago tonight, the 2-1 shootout win at the Boston Bruins. Ovechkin in that game, no points, but a game high five shots on goal, a game high 16 total shots, and a game high six hits, though we did have two minors. The Friday night 5-1 loss at the Bruins. Ovechkin, game worse plus minus rating a minus four, but also a game high eight shots on goal and four hits. And then the 3-1 win at the Philadelphia Flyers on Sunday night. Ovi actually had a goal in that game, an even strength goal in the second period, but also a team high eight shot attempts, including time for a team high with three shots on goal. So Ovechkin isn't necessarily always scoring or generating points or you know being credited with points, but he's active, he's involved, he's getting off shots. The goals are going to come and I think it's important to recognize this. Like, don't just get seduced by, well, you know, his goal total isn't that high. It's like, no, game in and game out, if you're watching these games especially, you're noticing Alex Ovechkin. Like, he is very much a factor. It was a weird game on Tuesday night, no doubt. And like I said, the Caps, there are a lot of reasons to feel like if there's such a thing as deserving to win, it's very debatable whether the Caps deserve to win. But they won, and that's what counts. Caps are now 15-6-4. and four. It's amazing. I mean, that is a tremendous record. When you factor in, you know, the circumstances of this season, the Caps are playing in maybe the toughest division in the NHL in a season in which you're doing nothing but playing against divisional opponents, right? This restructured NHL. Caps are in that brutal East division. You have a head coach in his first season with you and Peter LaViolette. You have dealt with a number of absences and injuries, right? Remember all the games that were missed by the Russians, Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Dmitry Orlov, Samsonov due to COVID-19 protocols. And yet the Caps are 15-6-4, and 34 points, Two points behind the East Division leading New York Islanders, who, by the way, won again a sixth consecutive victory on Tuesday night. 2-1 shootout win over the Boston Bruins. Caps are at the Philadelphia Flyers Thursday night at 7 and then back at the Flyers on Saturday night at 7. All right, we move to the Nationals. And if I ask you who or what is the biggest wild card for the Nats in 2021, truthfully, you have a lot of potential answers to that question. But I would say the biggest wild card of all is Steven Strasburg. Is he healthy? Is he good? Steven Strasburg is going into his age 32 season, the second season of that 70 year, $245 million contract that he was re signed to in December 2019, and he's coming off a 2020 season in which he made just two starts, pitched just five innings. It was not a good year one for Strasburg under the terms of that contract. He underwent surgery to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis in his right hand in August of 2020. And remember what Strasburg revealed in a Zoom spring training press conference 
back in February, said that his symptoms with the injury featured numbness in the right hand, but he did say that the numbness went away right after the surgery. And every indication during spring training has been that Strasburg is doing well. But we had not seen Strasburg pitch in a Grapefruit League game until last night. Strasburg was the Nats starting pitcher for what ended up being a four-all tie with the Houston Astros on Tuesday night. And the good news is that Strasburg looked good. Actually looked really good uh, in a lot of ways. One and two-thirds scoreless innings, four strikeouts versus no hits and one walk. Now, there were some nits to pick. Uh, He did spike several change-ups. He did throw a lot of pitches. He threw 38 pitches, 22 strikes versus 16 balls. So he did labor a bit. But on the whole, I mean, you know, the results were good. He was striking guys out. Three of the four strikeouts were strikeouts looking. And it's not like his strikeout victims were just, you know, one career minor leaguer after another. Strasburg struck out Carlos Correa. Strasburg struck out Yuli Gurriel. His velocity was good. Strasburg's velocity was in the low to mid-90s. So there was a lot to like. And maybe most important of all, no indication that Strasburg had any physical ailments during the outing. It seemed like everything went just fine. And this is exactly what you wanted. I mean, this is, you know, totally what you sign up for if you're a Nationals fan. So things are very much trending in a positive direction with Steven Strasburg. Obviously, they need him to be good, okay? First of all, I mean, that that contract, it's like so many of these big money contracts for pitchers don't work out. You don't want that to be the case, obviously, with Steven Strasburg. And of course, if the Nats are going to be good in 2021, if the Nats are going to get back to being a postseason team in 2021, it starts with the starting pitching, as has been the case since the Nats got good, beginning with that 2012 season. The starting pitching is the foundation upon which all of this Nats success has been built. You need Max Scherzer to be good in the final season of his big money contract. You need Strasburg to stay healthy, and you need Patrick Corbin to bounce back big time. And if you get all three of those things, Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, back to where they were or close enough to where they were in 2019, then there's no reason the Nationals can't be back in that 90-win territory and be back contending for a postseason spot. So good job by Strasburg on Tuesday night. Victor Robles homered on Tuesday night. That was good. You got some good outings from some likely relievers for you uh, this upcoming season too. Daniel Hudson, Will Harris, Javi Guerra, each tossing a perfect inning on Tuesday night. Now, while we're talking Grapefruit League baseball uh, for the Orioles, they themselves got a good start on Tuesday. Dean Kramer was a starting pitcher in what was a one nothing Grapefruit League loss to the Minnesota Twins on Tuesday afternoon. And Dean Kramer is a guy who the Orioles are looking at as one of their arms of the future. Everyone expects him to be in the Orioles rotation this season. You know, the three guys you feel certain about, or at least you feel pretty confident in, in terms of them being in that season opening rotation, John Means, Keegan Aiken, and Dean Kramer. And Dean Kramer on Tuesday afternoon looked really good in this game against the Twins. Three scoreless innings, three strikeouts, including two of Max Kepler, Kramer got clocked with a 97.5 mile per hour fastball in his final inning. So a nice outing from Dean Kramer. Dean Kramer is one of the guys who the O's got from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade back in July 2018. Kramer going into just his age 25 season. But I think the most notable thing from a standpoint of certainly DMV baseball on Tuesday was what the governor of Maryland proclaimed on Tuesday. Larry Hogan lifting slash easing a number of COVID-19 induced restrictions in the state. And among the changes, which are effective Friday at 5 p.m., large outdoor and indoor venues can begin operating at 50% capacity. 
And these venues include theaters, concert convention and wedding venues, racing facilities, and outdoor entertainment and sporting venues, i.e. Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Now, masking, physical distancing, other safety protocols do remain in place. So it's not, you know, uh, open season now in terms of we're right back to where things were in 2019. But Larry Hogan is easing COVID-19-induced restrictions and from a baseball standpoint, is going to be allowing 50% capacity at Camden Yards. Now, there, there is a response to that, which would be, well, these days, what's 50% capacity at Camden Yards? About 200 people? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, people weren't exactly showing up in droves at Camden Yards uh, in the seasons preceding the COVID-19 pandemic. But yes, I think this is good. You know, our area, the DMV area, the DMV area, as some of us like to say, has actually done a good job relative to the rest of the country when it comes to COVID-19. Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, the numbers in those three areas have never gotten out of control the way they got out of control in so many other parts of this country and of this world, right? I mean, this has not been just a thing here where like you've had spikes in COVID-19. So I I do think there's an element here of our area has acted for the most part responsibly and acted well, and we should be trusted to continue to act responsibly and act well. And as the numbers continue to go down and the people vaccinated continue to go up, yes, open things up, do so safely, stay vigilant. But you know, this thing of like, everything's got to be shut down until like this thing is completely gone. I've never bought into that. I know a lot of you have never bought into that. So I was happy to see this from Governor Hogan on Tuesday. And I bring this up especially because of what we're still waiting on with the Nationals. Now, I should say this with the Orioles. They have not yet announced plans for fans at Camden Yards this season. I would anticipate that changing. I would anticipate the Orioles announcing something sometime soon off what Governor Hogan declared on Tuesday. But we don't know. Like, just because you can have 50% capacity doesn't mean necessarily that you will be having uh, 50% capacity or you will be allowing for 50% capacity. We'll see what the O's end up doing. But with the Nationals, right, we are still waiting on what the case is going to be at Nationals Park, right? Uh, The last we heard on this was on March 2nd when we got that uh, letter from Dr. Christopher Rodriguez, Washington, D.C.'s Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, to the Nationals saying that DCS has approved the Nats' request to hold games at Nats Park, and approval was needed because of DC's continued ban on large gatherings due to the pandemic. But DC, at least for the time being, was denying the Nats' request to allow a limited number of fans at games. But it was made clear that, quote, the opportunity to have fans will be reexamined as the public health metrics associated with COVID 19 evolve in the district. So we're still waiting on that. Mayor Bowser on Monday did say that she was looking at lifting some virus-related restrictions on businesses, possibly including attendance at professional sports games in mid-March. Quote, our expectation is that we'll have some loosening now and even more later. End quote. Hopefully that includes Nationals Park. Hopefully Nats Park is opened up at least somewhat for opening night. I think you're going to have an allowance for at least some fans at Nats Park to begin the season. It would be awfully strict and I think awfully wrong if you didn't. Uh, you know, no one is saying you need to have 15, 20, 30,000 people there, but why can't you have 1,500, 2,000, 2,500, whatever number you want to come up with? Again, mask up, physically distance, other safety protocols. I mean, all the things we keep talking about over and over, but I think 100% the Nats should have fans at Nats Park. 
you can do it safely. You can do it properly. Nobody, again, is saying you need to have, you know, tens of thousands of people there. But opening night against the Mets, April 1st, I think Nats fans deserve it. And like I said, I think this area deserves it. I think we as an area, as the DMV, we've actually done a good job with this thing, okay? I know it's not popular to say that, but I think it's true, okay? We've done a good job, and we should be trusted to continue to do a good job. So we'll see what ends up happening with fans at Nats Park. But I know with a lot of the restrictions, you've had you have had a working together, a communicating between the three areas, right? DC, Maryland, Virginia. So I don't think you just say, well, Governor Hogan is doing what he's doing in Maryland, but DC's different. DC is different, but there is communication between Larry Hogan and Muriel Bowser. And so it's hard for me to think that Mayor Bowser isn't influenced at all or hasn't talked to Larry Hogan at all about what he ended up putting out there on Tuesday. All right, let's talk some college basketball. And congratulations to Daryl Morsell of Maryland, the 6'5 senior on Tuesday named 2021 Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. This was something that had been talked about in terms of Morsell being a prime candidate for the honor. But of course, you never know until you know who's going to end up getting an award by this. The award, by the way, voted on by the Big Ten's 14 head coaches. So this is significant. The head coaches in the league, in the league, as our friend Gary Williams would say, declaring that Daryl Morsell was the best defensive player in the conference, what is the best conference in college basketball this season. Morsell, the first player in Maryland basketball history to win a Conference Defensive Player of the Year award. Uh, The ACC, for whatever reason, did not introduce a Defensive Player of the Year award until the 2013-2014 season. So it's a bit misleading to say nobody with Maryland had ever won Defensive Player of the Year because the ACC didn't have the award for whatever reason until recently. But yeah, this is significant. Daryl Morsell, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. Daryl Morsell, I've talked about this, he has been the heart and soul of the Terrapins this season. There are so many games and moments that stand out for Morsell on the year. Like, I go back to that Maryland win at then number 12, Illinois, on January 10th, 66-63. So you have Morsell in this game coming off a really bad game, the blowout loss to then number five, Iowa, at Xfinity Center on January 7th. Morsell in that game came back from a one-game absence caused by a fractured bone in his face. He had six turnovers off the bench, and the game wasn't very good. So, like, start with that for a moment. The guy breaks a bone in his face, only misses one game. His first game back isn't a good game, but the next game, again, this win at then number 12, Illinois, Morsell, 19 points on 8 of 16 shooting, four rebounds, hits a big and tough driving bucket from the right block, for a 64-61 Terps lead in the final minute of the game. You look at something like the Maryland win at then number 17 Minnesota on January 23rd. Maybe the best defensive performance for Maryland this season. Daryl Morsell, just four points in the game, but the great defense started with him. Mark Turgeon during his virtual post-game press conference for that game, quote, it starts with Daryl, end quote, in terms of the defense. How about that win at Rutgers, 68-59, on February 21st. Morsell, a warrior in that game, dealing with a right shoulder issue that featured the shoulder per and having to twice be popped back into place. Morsell, 12 points on five of eight shooting, three steals, three assists versus two turnovers. Had a big stretch in the second half. Beautiful driving and one layup in the paint with heavy traffic and the shot clock winding down to put the Terps up by eight, 49-41 
in the second half. Uh, transition dunk off the steal by Jarris Hamilton for a 10-point lead, 51-41 in the second half. And then you have something like that great win by Maryland, and it's the team's most recent win, and hopefully it's not the last win of the season. Uh, but that 18-point victory over Michigan State, 73-55 at Xfinity Center on February 28th. Morcel not practicing in a week leading up to the game due to the shoulder issue. Ends up playing, ends up going four or five from the field, 11 points, three rebounds, three assists, one turnover. A warrior, tough as nails, excellent defensively, the biggest key to what has been maybe the single best defensive team Maryland has had in the Mark Turgeon era. So I know there hasn't been a lot of good feeling with Maryland lately off the last two games, you know, the two-game losing streak to conclude the regular season. The entire way we view this Maryland season could be altered by what happens in the postseason. There's no doubt about that. This is actually a fairly big spot for the Terps on Thursday in the Big Ten tournament. And I'm not someone who gets all caught up in how teams do in conference tournaments, but you do want to see Maryland play well. Like it is a little uneasy with the way Maryland ended the regular season. Nothing matters more than the NCAA tournament. So if Maryland loses, on Thursday to Michigan State, but then has a deep run in the NCAA tournament. I mean, it, it, who cares, right, what happened against the Spartans in the Big Ten tournament. But I do want to see the Terps play better. Uh, and so we'll see. Uh, it'll be on Thursday. It's an 11.30 a.m. tip. Maryland, Michigan State, eight seed versus the nine seed in the Big Ten tournament at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. Now, also playing on Thursday in the ACC tournament are Virginia and Virginia Tech. But playing today, Wednesday, is Georgetown. Hoyas are the eight seed in the Big East tournament. Will face nine-seeded Marquette at Madison Square Garden Wednesday afternoon at three. The winner to face one-seeded Villanova on Thursday at noon. The Hoyas with a very disappointing 98-82 loss at UConn on Saturday afternoon to wrap up the Georgetown regular season at 9-12 and overall, 7-9 and in the Big East. Just a really bad performance by a Hoyas team that very much needed to win that game to keep any realistic NCAA tournament hopes alive. It was nice to see Georgetown make this recent run, but it was just as disappointing to see Georgetown flop the way it flopped in that loss at UConn on Saturday afternoon. Patrick Stevens is one of the best bracketologists out there. You can read his work in the Washington Post. Nobody breaks down college basketball like Patrick. And Patrick is going to be joining me on today's podcast and on tomorrow's podcast, Talking College Hoops. Now, because Maryland, Virginia, Virginia Tech don't play until Thursday, we'll save our Terrapins, Cavaliers, and Hokies conversation for Thursday with Patrick. But today, because the Hoyas play on Wednesday afternoon, we've got Patrick on here to talk some Hoyas. So Patrick, appreciate you coming on very much. When it comes to Georgetown, in the Big East tournament here. Do the Hoyas need to win the Big East tournament to make the NCAA tournament, or would a deep run to the championship game, or even the semis, get the Hoyas in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it's four, it's four wins in four days for the Hoyas, who uh, the, the, you need to get yourself to 500 to have a fighting shot. If, if Even if they go 3-1, and one, they're still under 500 at that point, 12-13. and 13. Uh, You know, they've, they've had a few nice victories, too, winning at Creighton in particular, uh, is one that stands out, but uh, this is a Georgetown team that if it wants its season to continue, it, it can't afford to lose up at the Garden this week. Where are we with the Hoyas? This is Patrick Ewing's fourth season as Hoyas head coach. It's almost certainly going to be a sixth consecutive season in which Georgetown doesn't make the NCAA tournament. Do you think Patrick's back next year? Where is this program going right now, in your opinion? That's a good question, and I, I think one of the things that we need to see from Georgetown uh, or that, let's put it this way, 
what I would think Georgetown would want to see from its program is some continuity. Uh, you know, you kind of look at Ewing year by year. The first year was a year zero. I don't think anybody expected anything there. Uh, in some ways, five conference wins was actually pretty good for that team. Uh, year two had his first full class, you know, James Akinjo, Mac McClung, uh, Josh LeBlanc. And you saw those guys get better as the season went on. Uh, you had some other pieces around them. They made the NIT. You're feeling like that's that's the right track. Uh, and then last year, uh, you know, the roster went from a, basically 11 scholarship players that you were willing to play to seven um, in a blink of an eye there right after Thanksgiving. Uh, Akinjo was gone. LeBlanc was gone after the season. McClung transfers. So not only are you under 500 again, but you're basically starting over. Uh, and then you look at this season. Uh, you know, they've got some pieces that will still be around for a while. But, you know, you, you lose BLA, you lose Blair, uh, you lose Pickin, pre presumably. I'm assuming all these guys are, are, are going to call it a college career after this season. They might not. Uh, but ultimately, what you want is just is some year-to-year -year consistency. And I think that's what Georgetown needs to do. Uh, there's, there's not a situation here where you feel like for sure – that it's a building thing. It's essentially this was this roster this year was largely a scramble. And, and to their credit, they've gotten more out of it than, than I I expected them to. You know, when they were sitting there at three and eight back in January, and they have their pause, you're wondering, you know, are they going to come anywhere close to winning even six or seven games uh, it, with the way the Big East usually is? And you know, to their credit. You know, they got that victory over Providence at the end of January when they came back in kind of a gut check game and then beat Creighton. And, and they've picked up some victories since then, some nice home victories, Seton Hall and Xavier among them. Uh, but there needs to be some sort of stability with the roster and to be building towards something. And I think that, maybe more than wins and losses, is what Georgetown really needs. Just some sort of continuity where it's clear you're moving from A to B to C uh, from year to year to year. Yeah, no doubt. And Georgetown very clearly has not had that. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Uh, you'll be back with us on Thursday's podcast to talk Maryland, Virginia, and Virginia Tech. But that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming on Twitter at Al Galdi via email, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about the podcast. Let people know we're talking DC sports every weekday, Monday through Friday. And we're out early each morning by 5 a.m. as you're getting your day going. Listen when you want, but know that we are there for you very early each weekday morning. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you?